Sirah, a biography of Muhammad, the last messenger of Allah, written by Professor Dr. Safwat Khalilovich. Chapter 47 Liberation of Mecca Compensatory Umrah, Umratul Qada we noted earlier that although the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah did not seem favorable to the Muslims at first glance, it actually represented a major strategic victory as it paved the way for the liberation of Mecca. Under the terms of the treaty, the Prophet and the Muslims were to return to Medina that year when the treaty was concluded and would come to Mecca the following year, the seventh Anoah Hijrai. To make the lesser pilgrimage, Umrah, having returned from Hyber, the Prophet, peace be upon him, spent eight months in Medina. Rabiul Awwal, Rabiul Akhir, Jumad al-Ula, Jumad al-Akhir, Rajab, Sha'ban, Ramadan, and Shawwal. In that period, he occasionally dispatched small military formations and carried out some combat activities against the Arab tribes with which he had not concluded treaties. In the month of Zulqadeh, that is, the same month in which, in the previous year, the idolaters had prevented him from making the Umrah, he set out to make a compensatory Umrah. He was accompanied by all those who had been turned back together with him in the previous year. This happened in the seventh of Enohidrae. In line with the terms of the treaty, the Meccans vacated the center of Mecca. Rumors started circling among them that Muhammad, peace be upon him, was struck by troubles, exhaustion, and setbacks. Ibn Hisham transmits from Ibn Abbas. They lined up in front of their council, Darun Nedve, so that they could observe the Prophet and his party. As soon as he entered the Kaaba compound, the Messenger of God passed his upper garment under his right armpit, leaving the right shoulder bare, and crossed the other and over the left shoulder, and then said, May God have mercy to the man who shows his strength to them today. He then touched that corner of the Kaaba, where the black stone was, and started circumambulating the Kaaba briskly, and his companions followed suit. When the Kaaba walls shielded him from the pagan's view, and when he touched its southern corner, he slowed down and walked slowly until he reached the black stone corner, when he again started walking briskly, and thus made three circumambulations Tawaf. He did the remaining circumambulations at a slower pace. The biographers state that the Prophet married Maimuna bint al-Harith during that journey. His uncle Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib gave her hand in marriage to him. When the prescribed three days expired, the Prophet asked Quraysh to allow him to stay in Mecca for a while longer, so that he could arrange a wedding feast, there to which he would invite them as well, but they refused. We do not need your food. Go away from us. The Prophet's conduct shows his attempt to communicate with people in every possible way, including the most fierce opponents, with the aim of arriving at a more favorable climate that would have facilitated a peaceful resolution to the conflict. This is also an indication that the Prophet, peace be upon him, avoided wars and shedding of blood whenever possible.
The Battle of Muta, Ghazwat Muta. Having returned from Mecca, the Prophet spent in Medina the remaining part of the month of Zulhijjah, leaving it to the idolaters to perform the pilgrimage that year, and the month of Muharram, Safar, Rabiul Awal, and Rabiul Akhir. In Jumad al-Ula, September 629 CE, he dispatched an army against Syria as a punitive measure against the murderers of his envoy to the Byzantine Emperor Heraclius. Previously, in early the 7th of Anwar Hijrai, the Prophet had sent companion Dihya el Kelbi to the governor of Bussra with a letter for Heraclius. As he did not get any response to the letter, he sent another envoy, Harith ibn Umair al-Azdi. This envoy was intercepted and killed by the chief of the Ghassan tribe. Such an act could not be left unpunished, despite the risk that the Ghassanites, who were mostly Christians, might persuade Heraclius to send them assistance. The Prophet mobilized a 3,000-strong army and appointed Zayd ibn Harith the commander. He ordered that should Zayd fall, Jafar ibn Abi Talib should take his place. Should Jafar be killed, Abdullah ibn Revaha should assume the command. He ordered to Zayd to go to the place where Harith ibn Umair al-Azdi had been killed and call the inhabitants to Islam, and should they heed the call, there would be no war. Should they refuse, he should then pray to God for help and fight them. On that occasion, the Prophet issued an order to the Muslim troops how to behave in war. He told them, I order you to fear God and to treat the enemy kindly. Fight in the name of God and His way. Do not attack without a warning and do not plunder. Do not kill children, women, feeble, old men or monks in monasteries. Do not damage palms, do not cut trees, do not pull down buildings. These words of the Prophet are an indication of a high moral code that the Muslims adhered to in warfare and the best rebuttal of allegations that Islam spread violently. Soon afterward, the army got on its way with God's blessing and the Prophet's farewell. They marched until they reached a place called Maran, where they learned that Heraclius had mobilized an enormous army against them. Some authors assert that it had 200,000 troops, so they made an encampment to assess the new situation. The Byzantine army comprised the Byzantines and the baptized Arabs. The Muslims held a council what to do and eventually decided to seek help from the Prophet in Medina or ask him to give them a different order. Then Abdullah ibn Rawaha stood up and said, The thing you despise now is the very one for which you set out. You seek death in the way of God, martyrdom. We do not fight enemy with our equipment or size or strength, but we fight with the faith that God has honored us with. You have before you one of the two good things, victory or martyrdom. After this speech, the companions agreed they should fight. 
The battle took place at Muta, a place on the border with El-Sham at that time. The town's modern name is El-Karak, and it is located southeast of the Dead Sea in modern Jordan. Zaid fought heroically until he was killed, and then the flag was taken over by Jafar ibn Abi Talib. At first he fought in the saddle, and when he was forced to dismount from his horse, he did so and continued fighting on foot. When his right hand was cut off, he took the standard with his left hand, and when it was cut off as well, he clasped the standard with his arms to his chest and held it so until he was killed. His comrades found more than seventy wounds on him. May Allah be pleased with him, including spare steps and sword lacerations. Then Abdullah ibn Revaha assumed the command and fought until he too fell as a martyr. The Muslims then appointed Khalid ibn al-Walid as their commander. That was his first battle in Islam. Making use of his strategic skills, he succeeded in saving the Muslim army from annihilation, given that it was far outnumbered by the enemy. Historians state that the Byzantines, helped by the Arab tribes from the north, mobilized an army of 200,000 well-equipped warriors. That was the first battle that the Muslims launched against Byzantium outside the Arabian Peninsula. Although the Prophet did not take part in it, it was called a campaign, Gazwa, because of a large number of the companions who took part in it. There were 3,000 of them, which differs considerably from the other dispatched reconnaissance missions Saraya. Owing to that battle, the Prophet peace be upon him gave Khalid ibn al-Walid radiallahu anhu an honorific title Saifullah, the Sword of God. The Liberation of Mecca the campaign against Mecca took place in the month of Ramadan, the 8th of Enoahidrai. The peace treaty of Hudaybiyah ordained an armistice in the next ten years. So how did it happen that Muslims launched a campaign against Mecca, when it is well known that the Prophet, peace be upon him, always honored agreements, especially written peace treaties? The third clause of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah reads, Whosoever wishes to enter an alliance with Muhammad and honor this treaty may do so. Likewise, whosoever wishes to ally with Quraysh may do so. A tribe that enters an alliance with one side shall be considered a part of that side, and every attack on the allied tribe shall be treated as an attack on the whole side. So the treaty allowed alliances between Arab tribes and the Prophet or Quraysh as desired. On these grounds, the tribe of Banu Bakr entered an alliance with Quraysh, while the tribe of Huza allied with Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. That year, the tribe of Banu Bakr, which Quraysh helped with money and arms, attacked the Huza tribe and killed twenty of its members. The Prophet got very angry when he heard about this, as it meant a breach of the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah, its mutual non-aggression clause. 
the prophet began preparing for the final showdown with Quraysh. He made every effort to make the preparations quietly, and for that reason did not want to inform the men of his intent so as to prevent Quraysh from getting ready. In that way the prophet wanted to avoid a major armed conflict that would have resulted in a large number of casualties and desecration of the integrity of the holy city. However, a companion named Khatib ibn Abi Balta secretly sent a letter to Mecca informing the Meccans about the Prophet's imminent campaign against them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down a revelation about this event to the Prophet peace be upon him, who sent a group of companions to catch up with a woman who was carrying the letter hidden in her plait. When the secret was discovered, the Prophet summoned Khatib and asked him, What made you do it? He answered, O Prophet by God, I do believe in God and his Prophet. I have not changed or substitute my faith with something else, but I am a man without standing or kinsman among the people of Mecca, and my child and wife have stayed behind among them. So I wanted to win favor with the Meccans for my family's sake. Omar exclaimed, O messenger of God, allow me to cut his bed off. He is a hypocrite, the prophet said. He fought at better. What do you know? Perhaps God looked upon the better participants and said, Do what you will, for I have forgiven you. The prophet's compassion and endeavor to forgive people whenever possible was manifested in this case as well. On the 10th of Ramadan, the Prophet, peace be upon him, made his way toward Mecca. He broke the Ramadan fast on the journey because of the great strain and exhaustion, and the others followed suit. When they set off from Medina, they were 10,000 strong, but several other Arab tribes joined them on their way to Mecca. In the place of Mer al-Zahran, the Prophet's sentries came across Abu Sufyan and two companions of his, apprehended them and took them to the Prophet. Abu Sufyan embraced Islam on that occasion. The Prophet's uncle Abbas, whom they encountered and wrote while he was on his way to emigrate to Medina, told the Prophet, Abu Sufyan is indeed a proud man, so give him something that he can have pride in. The Prophet then said, Whoever takes refuge in Abu Sufyan's house shall be safe. When the Muslim army came close to Mecca, the Prophet's herald announced, Whoever stays in his house behind closed door shall be safe. Whoever enters the holy sanctuary shall be safe. Whoever takes refuge in Abu Sufyan's house, he too shall be safe. This general amnesty was not granted to fifteen persons who committed the most heinous crimes against Islam and Muslims and who were thus specially responsible. The Prophet, peace be upon him, entered Mecca on his camel with his head bent so low that his forehead almost touched the saddle. In that way he expressed his gratitude to God Almighty for this great victory. The Prophet then performed circumambulation of the Kaaba and demolished nearly 360 idols that were inside and around the Kaaba.
He then entered the Kaaba, performed two cycles of prayer, and stood at its door. While Quraysh waited to see what he would do to them, he asked them, O Quraysh, what do you think, how I will treat you? They answered, You are a noble brother and a son of a noble brother. The Prophet then said, Today I say as my brother Joseph had said to his brothers long ago, I will not reproach you now, God will forgive you, and he is the most merciful of the merciful. Go your way now, you are free. With these words the Prophet proclaimed for all times the character of his prophetic mission that abounded with kindness, generosity, forgiveness, and every possible good. That magnificent event, when the Prophet could have easily slain hundreds, even thousands of people, yet he did not but forgave them generously, marked a precedent in the history of warfare, in which triumphant armies usually slaughtered the people on the defeated side. The people were deeply moved, having witnessed the Prophet's mercy and forgiveness. They gathered at Safa to swear allegiance to Islam before him. The Prophet came at Safa and took allegiance from them that they would be submissive and obedient to God and his Prophet as much as they could. First the men pledged allegiance and then the women, and he did not shake hands with any of the women. Among the women who swore allegiance was Abu Sufyan's wife, Hind, who had mutilated the Prophet's beloved uncle, Hamza, at the Battle of Uhud. For that reason, the Prophet had earlier allowed her execution. However, he recognized her only after she had sworn allegiance, so he forgave her. That day, the Prophet, peace be upon him, ordered Bilal, radiallahu anhu, to make the noon prayer call from the rooftop of the Kaaba, which marked the end of the pagan religion in the Arabian Peninsula. At that moment, the light of true monotheism, Tawhid, shone brightly, putting an end to the darkness of idol-worshipping around the world ever since. Did Islam spread violently? Recently certain non-Muslim circles in the West have accused Muslims that their religion is inhumane, as it allegedly spread in a violent manner. Unfortunately, such accusations do not only come from the journalists who belong to certain media lobbies and centers, but also from the highest-ranking religious dignitaries such as Pope Benedict XVI. In a lecture he delivered in Regensburg in Germany in September of 2006, he made a reference to one dialogue from the Middle Ages between the Byzantine Emperor Manuel II and the Persian sage. The emperor accused Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that what he had brought to mankind was evil and inhumane, as he had allegedly ordered that his religion should be spread by sword. 
We shall not discuss here whether what the Prophet, peace be upon him, brought to mankind is evil and inhumane. An unbiased look into the history of Islam suffices to realize easily that Muslims gave a huge contribution to the development of different scientific disciplines, such as medicine, mathematics, astronomy, geography, and other sciences that enabled the progress of human civilization at a cultural level. The Prophet, peace be upon him, initiated without any coercion one of the greatest transformations in the history of mankind. The events surrounding the liberation of Mecca are an impressive and distinctive indication of the true character of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who never felt hatred for his opponents. The Prophet released his opponents and showed mercy to them after their conflicts that had lasted for more than twenty years. At the time of these conflicts, there was not a single manner or method of annihilation of the Prophet, his companions, and his mission that his enemies did not employ. And even when he completely defeated them and conquered the capital of their idolatry, everything he did was to release the captives and pray to God to forgive them. It is very difficult to find a similar example in history. It could only be done by the noble prophet, who did not seek power nor superiority with his mission, but was sent by the Almighty Creator to guide and conquer human hearts and minds. That is why he entered Mecca humbly, grateful to God, and not arrogant like great conquerors. In the Prophet's instructions to the Muslim army on the eve of the Muta campaign, one detects a compassion that characterizes the Islamic fighting. The Prophet forbids killing of known combatants. Do not kill children, women, feeble, old men, or monks in monasteries. Do not damage palms. Do not cut trees. Do not pull down buildings. The Prophet's companions and the Muslims who came after adhered to this advice for centuries to come. The wars they waged were the most merciful wars recorded in history. While they fought, they showed more benevolence and mercy than others did in peacetime. Such conduct of Muslims went down in history as a shining example, whereas the conduct of others was recorded as a negative example. Suffice it to recall the barbarism of the Crusaders when they conquered Jerusalem, and compare it with the compassion that Salahuddin al-Ayyubi demonstrated toward Europeans when he regained control of that city. Likewise, we should not forget the crimes that the Inquisition committed against Muslims and Jews in Spain when Christians regained power in the Iberian Peninsula, whilst a multicultural and multireligious society had existed in Muslim Spain for centuries before that. The prohibition of killing the feeble and known combatants, such as monks, women, children, and the elderly, and the ones who are forced to fight as farmers and hired workers, is a feature that, beyond any doubt, makes Islam stand out in the history of warfare. Nothing similar to that unique regulation, full of mercy and compassion, has been known to exist either before or after the rise of Islam. 
it was a customary and tacitly admitted rule with all peoples that at times of war warring parties are permitted to kill all categories of the population of the adversary making no exception even in our times, with the formal proclamation of respect for human rights and international organizations' assistance to endangered peoples, the mankind has not yet achieved that degree of nobility so as to impose a prohibition of killing the above-mentioned categories. Whole cities and villages were destroyed in the First and the Second World War. In the aggression against Bosnia-Herzegovina, in the early 1990s, Sarajevo and many other towns in the country were besieged from 1992 to 1996 and exposed to constant shelling. Dozens of thousands of innocent children, women and elderly were killed in the aggression. At the same time, non-Muslim communities lived and survived in the besieged Sarajevo and other towns under Muslim control. The Islamic regulations require from Muslims to treat non-Muslims normally and kindly, except when it comes to the rights and duties related to religious practice, ibadah. Non-Muslims are equal with Muslims in all other aspects of social life and civic rights. In that regard, it is advisable to recall the writing of one respectable European author, a Christian who cannot be accused of bias. That is Thomas Walker Arnold, who wrote in his book The Preaching of Islam about the rapid spread of Islam and a large number of conversions to it. He says, that force was not the determining factor in these conversions may be judged from the amicable relations that existed between the Christian and the Muslim Arabs. Muhammad himself had entered into treaty with several Christian tribes, promising them his protection and guaranteeing them the free exercise of their religion and to their clergy, undisturbed enjoyment of their old rights and authority. From the examples given above of the toleration extended towards the Christian Arabs by the victorious Muslims of the first century of the Hijra and continued by succeeding generations, we may surely infer that those Christian tribes that did embrace Islam did so of their own choice and free will. The same author also wrote, when the Muslim army reached the valley of the Jordan and Abu Ubaidah pitched his camp at Fihl, the Christian inhabitants of the country wrote to the Arabs, saying, O Muslims, we prefer you to the Byzantines, though they are of our own faith, because you keep better faith with us and are more merciful to us, and refrain from doing us injustice, and your rule over us is better than theirs, for they have robbed us of our goods and our homes.